Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Burundians reject UN report on the country's human rights situation and the UN urges sustained momentum towards democratic governance in Somalia. In economics news, first quantum to invest $1 billion in Zambia and in sports news, South African proteas ready for upcoming tour of New Zealand. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussa. The United Nations Security Council has strongly condemned continued fighting across South Sudan as well as the attacks directed against civilians. In a statement issued, the Council called on all parties to cease hostilities immediately. It also urged the transitional government of national unity to take measures to ensure that those responsible for the attacks are held accountable. Members of the Security Council urged all stakeholders to implement the peace agreement brokered by the UN in 2015, which relies on both the national dialogue and a major international effort involving the UN, the African Union, the regional trade bloc known as EGAD. Six journalists, including three media owners, have been arrested in the Ivory Coast for spreading false information about a mutiny by suspected forces. The move came after elite forces became the latest troops to protest over pay in recent weeks in the West African nation. They were arrested on suspicion of breaking the law, which forbids inciting rebellion among the military, attacking state authority and publishing false information relating to defense and state security. Angolan President José Eduardo dos Santos has ordered a probe into the cause of a deadly stampede at a football stadium during a match that left at least 17 people dead and nearly 60 more injured. The presidential decree was issued following the stampede that occurred at a stadium in a northern city. Reports say hundreds of people stormed one of the gates of the municipal stadium after they failed to gain entry before the start of the match. Authorities say several people were suffocated. Close on 40 people have been arrested in Paris after clashes erupted over the assault of a young black man. Hundreds of people demonstrated outside a court building to demand justice for the 22-year-old youth worker who required surgery after his arrest in a gritty northern suburb of the French capital. He was allegedly sodomized with a police stretch on. A police officer has since been charged with rape. Demonstrators clashed with police and went on the rampage attacking cars, shops and houses. 
And finally, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says efforts to fight terrorism and extremists in Syria cannot succeed without a political solution supported by its people. Guterres met with the Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan during his very first bilateral visit since assuming his position in January. Turkey is the first leg of a trip that will also take him to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, Qatar and Egypt. Jocelyn Simbira reports. The Secretary General and President Erdogan discussed the situation in Syria and the ongoing diplomatic efforts towards ending the conflict. Antonio Guterres commended Turkey for its outstanding generosity and underscored the need to fight terrorism and extremists in Syria. However, he added that effort would not be successful without a political solution supported by the people of the country. The two also discussed the situation in Iraq and the ongoing operations to liberate Mosul and other areas from Daesh. These operations should be a symbol of national reconciliation and should not exacerbate sectarianism. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Hundreds of Burundians took to the streets on Saturday to protest against the UN report saying hundreds of people are fleeing the country every week. The protesters slammed the report released by UN's refugee agency, UNHCR, which says there is growing governmental hostility towards NGOs and human rights defenders in the country. From Bujumbura, Bernard Bangukira has more. Another weekend of massive protests in Burundi, from the capital Bujumbura to the countryside. Government officials and militants of the ruling party were deployed in big numbers with the same message, we reject all wrong reports, could be read on banners carried by marchers. All was motivated by the statement made by the United Nations human rights experts on February 6, 2017, condemning the recent ban and provisional suspension of a number of civil society organizations in Burundi and warning about what was called obstructive and restrictive legislation on NGOs in a growing repression of human rights defenders, according to the experts. For the government, the statement is based on wrong information given by ill-willed people. Speaking to furious protesters, Terence Nahiraja, the Home Affairs Cabinet Chief, who headed the march in the capital Bujumbura, said the government cannot accept such reports which, according to him, are wrong. He calls the partners who suspended their aid to Burundi to change their minds and support Burundi. The government of Burundi rejects once again the contents of the statements issued by a group of United Nations human rights experts on Monday 6th, February 2017. They are lies and machinations that we cannot accept. The government of Burundi rejects again the so-called group of United Nations human rights experts appointed to come to Burundi just to endorse the wrong report on human rights in Burundi produced in September last year and that we all rejected. Once again we say no. The government of Burundi pledges once more to ensure peace and security for all Burundians and foreigners all over the country. We also urge those who 
kutoke the decision of cutting heads to Burundi, Europeans and others to come to their decision and engage in a constructive dialogue with us. So as we found out the way of rebuilding our relations, as we believe dialogue is better than fighting. In their statement of February 6, 2017, the United Nations human rights experts accounted for the drastic measures taken by the government of Burundi in a bid to control their activities in the country. The adoption by the National Assembly of two bills in December 2016 aimed at closely controlling the action of local and international organizations and compelling them to obtain authorization from the Home Affairs Minister for any activity and to transfer funds of foreign currency through the central bank is a harsh obstructive move aiming at thwarting the remission. In the statement, the experts denounced what they termed as attacks on the rights to freedom of expression and association in Burundi. As for them, these measures take particular aim at human rights defenders and independent civil society and are being used to unduly abstract and criminalize their work. The experts warned that the situation of human rights defenders has been dramatically deteriorating for more than a year and a half now, saying those who have not yet left the country fear for their life and are under relentless intimidation, threat of arbitrary detention, torture and enforced disappearance. For them, patterns of systematically targeting human rights organizations and human rights defenders coupled with the restrictive legal environment suggest that there is a deliberate will to suppress every dissenting voice in the country. The experts called on the Burundian authorities to revise the new NGO legislation to ensure its compliance with the international law and standards to prevent adverse consequences on the important work of hundreds of organizations and human rights defenders. They urged the government to put an end to what they described as the climate of impunity prevailing in the country and cooperate with the Commission of Inquiry on Burundi and the Office of the High Commissioner in a positive and collaborative manner, what the government has strongly rejected. Till now, five organizations have been banned as four others have been provisionally suspended. Most of those organizations have been militating against the controversial third term of President Pierre Nkurunziza, a move that put their accreditation at stake. Apart from the experts' statement, protesters also too came at the recent report of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs on an increase in number of refugees to a rate of 500 people fleeing the country every day to neighboring countries, citing insecurity in Burundi, what the Burundian officials also deny. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. The United Nations Security Council has welcomed the conclusion of a Somalia electoral process that ended with the election of President Mohamed Abdullahi Famadro. A dual U.S. Somali citizen, the new president was elected last week by lawmakers ousting incumbent President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud. But the... The Security Council welcomed the swift and gracious transfer of power in a region prone to instability. Show and Bryce Peace reports. A victory for the former Prime Minister, seen as a small step forward in a country still at war with a militant Al-Shabaab insurgency. The Security Council adopted a presidential statement welcoming the conclusion of the process. Council President Ukrainian Ambassador Volodymyr Yelchenko. The Security Council welcomes the political and security progress in Somalia since 2012 and underscores the need to maintain the momentum towards 
democratic governance in Somalia. The Security Council commends the increased participation and representation of the people of Somalia in the electoral process. The Council emphasizes the importance of governing in a spirit of national unity in an inclusive manner and of adhering to the political roadmap in order to reach one person, one vote elections in four years' time. The Council lauded the role of the United Nations, the African Union, the regional bloc EGAD and the peacekeeping force AMISOM in enabling the electoral process that will also see the increased representation of women in both Houses of Parliament. The Security Council welcomes the increased representation of women in the Upper House and the House of the People and underlines the important contribution of women to Somalia's peace-building and state-building process. Earlier in a statement, the UN Secretary-General expressed hope the new president will move expeditiously to form an inclusive cabinet, while other concerns were also pointed to in the Council statement. President Yelchenko again. The Security Council calls on President Farmaggio and his government to give urgent attention to the immediate risk of famine, to take active steps to prevent it, and to address the consequences of the severe drought in Somalia. The Council appeals to donors to increase support to the humanitarian response plan for Somalia and to support the appeals for aid by Somali federal and regional authorities. The Council reiterates the need for full, safe and unhindered access for the timely delivery of aid to persons in need across Somalia. The new government must also finalize a new constitution while establishing an effective national security service throughout the country. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today in history, we celebrate World Radio Day. Radio remains the most dynamic and engaging mediums in the 21st century, offering new ways to interact and participate. Now, this powerful communication tool and low-cost medium can reach the widest audience, including remote communities and vulnerable people such as the illiterate, the disabled, women, youth and the poor. Today, as we celebrate World Radio Day, observed every February the 13th, the objective of this day is to raise a greater awareness among the public and media of the importance of radio, to encounter decision-makers, to establish and provide access to information through radio, as well as to enhance networking and international cooperation among broadcasters. So we ask you today, how important is radio 
in your life. Send us your un- your views and your answers to info at channelafrica.org.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. How important is radio to you? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Daily broadcasts from a network base in Paris known as Radio Rosanna provide Syrian civilians with a vital voice that can trust they can trust at home and abroad. That's the view of Editor-in-Chief Lina Chavarp speaking to UN Cultural Agency UNESCO in a special interview to mark World Radio Day today. The day marked annually on the 13th of February is meant to remember the unique power of radio in touching lives and bringing people together across every corner of the globe. Chawaf set up the independent radio station in the French capital in 2013 and believes that Radio Rosanna has become one important way after nearly six years of brutal civil war for Syrians to express their souls. Chawaf describes how Radio Rosanna got started. It's an independent radio who uh, has been uh, now broadcasting since 2013, training a lot of uh, correspondents inside Syria and outside. We started uh, with uh, 20 correspondents. Now we have more than 50 correspondents inside Syria. We are trying to be the voice of all the civilian Syrian. We are trying all the time to be uh, connected to the Syrian audience inside Syria and Diaspora. You've actually got a very broad audience. Yes. Who have a common ancestry in that they are yeah. they yeah. are Syrians. Yeah, in the beginning when we start with Rosanna, we really wanted to focus inside Syria, but the disaster is becoming bigger and bigger and it's really now you can say half of the Syrian are outside. Where does the name Rosanna come from? What is the significance of that name? In Arabic, it's uh, the hole in the old uh, Arabic home in the roof who lets the sun or the light going inside. So this is like hope. Shedding Shed- the light. Yeah, you're, shedding you're shedding the light. light and you're giving people yeah, hope. We are trying to do this. So it's really an important aspect of daily life, isn't it? Or how do people tune in to the radio station? How do they listen? We have many kind of platform. We have the online platform. We have the satellite. This mm-hmm. is a very wide platform where a lot of Syrian can really access and listen. And we have a lot of actually of callers from the audience through the satellite. And we have the FM too and the apps. So the theme for World Radio Day 2017 is radio is you and we really want to encourage radio stations to listen to their listeners. How do you make sure that when you shed that light that you really are getting the the real news, the real information that your listeners want to hear? Yeah. This radio, when uh, it's 
established and started. Like I said, it has to be the voice of the people, the normal people. After six years of the Syrian revolution, when it started, mm -hmm. it was a revolution. Now it's become a war, unfortunately. So after six years, all the civilians, they feel like they're under censorship from everybody, like from the regime, from the extremist Islamists. So they need a platform or they need a media who can uh, talk with a freely opinion mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they have to express themselves their thought and this is w why we feel like Rosanna is the way for the Syrian civilian to express their thoughts, their value their belief that they really have been starting this since six years Yeah, it's something that UNESCO fights for very strongly is, is freedom of expression and one of the things that we're thinking about this World Radio Day is that people want freedom from fear and they want freedom from want and if you're fearful and fearful to express yourself then you know you don't have that freedom to live a life a live a fulfilled life yes I think that's one of the really wonderful things that radio can give people that idea that they can phone in or they can tell you what you're doing and you know really help to build an audience yeah, um, and around those issues. And because in the radio you can hide behind your voice. Yes. And this is give them more freedom uh, to express. It's not television where they are afraid to show their faces. So this is give them more freedom to talk really. That was Lina Chawaf, editor-in-chief of the Paris-based Syrian radio station Radio Rosanna and she was speaking to United Nations Education Scientific Cultural Organization's Alison Meston. Now, going back in time to today in 1976, General Muturla Ramat Mohammed, Nigerian head of state since a bloodless coup in 1975, is assassinated during a failed military coup. That was today in history in the year 1976. This is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, societies need to commit to their young people in order to fight violent extremism effectively. A UNESCO Goodwill Ambassador said Dia Khan is the UN cultural organization, UNESCO's Goodwill Ambassador for Artistic Freedom and an award-winning documentary filmmaker. For her film, Jihad, A Story of the Others, Khan spent two years interviewing active and former Islamist extremists from Europe and North America to find out what makes young people vulnerable to radicalization. Speaking to Lucy Dean, she called for greater compassion from individuals and societies to ensure that young people are not left behind. 
our societies have a responsibility to make sure that we engage properly and fully and also respectfully with our young people. If we don't, other people are willing to do it. Violent groups are willing to do it. Gangs are willing to do it. Neo-Nazi groups are willing to do it. So I, I don't see this as just a Muslim issue or, or an issue of Muslim youth. I see this as a global issue where a lot of our young people are being left behind and we're expecting them to figure out life uh, and to make all the right decisions and to do all the right stuff just on their own without us providing any kind of support, any kind of compassion or understanding or mentorship or encouragement. So I, I think I think our societies, the global community, local communities are failing our young people. As a whole, we're doing not a very good job in, in standing by and supporting young people into becoming whatever it is that they want to become in a healthy, safe, peaceful, positive way. It's a big job. We have to do it. The thing is, if we don't do it, who's going to? Things, things aren't going to fix themselves. And, and you can't fix things just by bombing people. As that's just, you know, history has proven that just is, is not the way to go. We're going to have to commit to our young people. We're going to have to actually do this right um, and, and be personally invested in it. And actually take the time to care. Really, it all comes down just to care. You have to care about people. You have to care about what happens to our young people. And, and you know, I, I always try and say this, you know, some of our young people have given up on themselves and they've given up on us. And we must not give up on them. And, and not just for their sake, but also for our own sake. You know, it's, it's not just that they are in the process of, you know, some of our kids are in the process of losing their humanity, but we are losing ours if we give up on them. So we cannot prove their story right. The story they're telling themselves is that we don't care about them, is that we don't want them, is that we think they're a problem and, and that we would rather do away with them. So we have to, we have to prove that wrong. Even when they act out, even when they push back and kick back and, you know, we still have to hang in there. Because ultimately, we want them to be okay. That's the goal. The goal is not, I wish them dead. The goal is, I wish you to live, and I wish you to live fully and freely and happily. Might sound corny, but it's love that comes back to that. It always comes back to love. I had a really long conversation the other day with an ex-violent extremist, but not of the, the Muslim stripe, of the white supremacist. And I asked him, I said, what is it that changed it for you? And he said, look, the only thing that will disrupt hatred, even when it feels like maybe it's a corny answer, maybe it is a counterintuitive answer, but it is love. That's the only thing that will disrupt it. It really, really is. And I think now more than ever in, in the climate that we're living in, in, in the political climate that we're in, in a lot of countries now, if we don't put love and empathy and compassion and understanding and caring and our shared humanity first, then our, what makes us different uh, is where people are going to try and create even more divisions and wedges between us. And we have to do the opposite. What extremists on all sides of this, this game want is for the rest of us to hate each other, is for the rest of us to fear each other, and for the rest of us to become more divided. And at all costs, we have to resist that. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we're in this together. We have to keep reminding ourselves what kind of world we want to 
be in and what kind of world we want to create moving forward. And surely the answer has to be that it's, it has to be a world that includes all of us, where we all have a place, where we all have a voice, where we all have a purpose, where we all belong, and where we're all working towards something together that's good for as many of us as possible and to do our utmost to make sure that no one's left behind. That was Dia Khan, UNESCO's Goodwill Ambassador for Artistic Freedom and award-winning documentary filmmaker, speaking to Lucy Dean. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now let's go back in time to today in 1997. Rebels under Laurent Kabila take Zairean town of Faraje while advancing on countries on the country's third largest city, Kisangani. That was today in history in the year 1997. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. As the food crisis in Yemen deteriorates, United Nations agencies are calling on the international community to help avert a catastrophe. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, the World Food Program and the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, the conflict has left more than two-thirds of Yemenis struggling to feed themselves. Salah Al-Hajj Hassan, FAO representative in Yemen, elaborates more on the situation. It has been already released today that 18.8 million Yemenis are in need for humanitarian assistance. Before the crisis, 41% of the Yemenis were classified to face food and secure conditions, and now we are talking about 17.1 million Yemenis, while we have also 2 million IDPs, uh, internally displaced people in Yemen. I'm aware that the preliminary results of a new emergency food security and nutrition assessment have come in. What are the main findings? 65% of the Yemenis households are estimated to be uh, food insecure. Over 80% of the Yemenis are found to be in debt and more than 50% households are buying food on credit. From the agricultural and livelihood part, nearly 40% of agricultural households face decreased production of cereals in 2016 compared to pre-crisis. Uh, around 1.6 million households are in need for emergency supports for agricultural inputs. 64% of the households which are livestock owners are facing critical problems in the availability of animal feed. 54% of the households are facing problems in crop and livestock diseases. And 45% of the agricultural households suffered from decreased livestock numbers in 2016 compared to pre-crisis. And this is due mainly to forced selling to cover their household needs and to the loss of animals to the death resulted from diseases or from other reasons related to the crisis. 
What is being done by FAO and other agencies to help the situation? Well, uh, FAO has already been implementing several interventions relating to the support and the different forms, especially in agricultural inputs, seeds, fertilizers, feed, solar units, uh, ice boxes to fishermen, fish nets, fishing nets, engines to the boats, boats even directly support that has been oriented on several levels and the capacity development of animal health workers and uh, other agricultural technicians. This has been done in the most affected governorate that has been already classified within the IPC, last IPC exercise, which are nine governorates, out of which these governorates have been receiving these kinds of supports. And this is the kind of support that FAO is still doing and in terms of the priorities that have been identified and shared with the partners within the cluster, within the other partners frameworks that we are conducting and leading and sharing with the authorities and the different parts of Yemen. That was Salah al Haj Hassan, representative of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in Yemen, speaking to Mural Sa of FAO Radio. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. In the headlines, United Nations Security Council condemns continued fighting across South Sudan as well as the attacks directed against civilians. Angolan President José Eduardo de Santos has ordered a probe into the cause of a deadly stampede at a football stadium during a match that left at least 17 people dead and nearly 60 more injured. And U.S. President Donald Trump has defended the arrests of hundreds of undocumented migrants across the United States, saying it is in keeping with his campaign promise to remove illegal criminals from the country. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And let's go back in time to today in the year 2005. South Africa's group Lady Smith Black Mambazo won their second Grammy Award for their album When You Gela. The group rose to international stardom when they collaborated with Paul Simon on his album Graceland in 1986. The album went on to win three Grammy Awards. That was Today in History in the year 2005. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Rwanda's Ministry of Health has banned the use of mobile phones in all health facilities in the country. This comes as one of the most stringent measures against poor service delivery within hospitals. The ban will be put into effect starting March the 1st this year. Silvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. At one of the health facilities in the suburbs of the capital Kigali, citizens pointed out lack of medicine and congestion of patients 
that leads to long queues which in the end derives to poor service delivery. I came from home at 4 a.m. I got number 52 and instead of being accepted, people kept on passing me by. The problem is where to pay from. In a meeting that gathered the Minister of Health, public hospitals directors, head of nurses, partners, head of medical forums, district leaders in charge of social affairs, hospital executive committees, mounting to more than 200 people, admitted that much still needs to be done to improve service delivery in hospitals in Rwanda. Being a physician is a call. You need a heart for it. You could grow up with a heart to treat people. You could also study to be a doctor and get old without a heart of a physician. It is a vocation to be a physician. Talking of destruction without full concentration, thoughts and your mind is not acceptable in medical services. We have blamed ourselves and the Ministry of Health has supported us along with the government because we have seen that phones distract us and we want to eradicate it in public hospitals, ensuring that whenever a doctor will be on duty, nothing will distract them. No phone will divert them while providing service. Rwanda's Minister for Health, Dr. Diane Gashumba, said that no one would be tolerated working in health services yet, giving poor services to patients. She said that next month the decision would be put to effect. Yeah, we've uh, talked about the use of phones in hospitals uh, that is uh, having a negative impact on the quality of care we are providing to the population. And uh, we are happy today to have uh, decided together with the directors of hospitals, vice mayors of uh, district and the president of board and uh, representative of uh, councils, we've decided to stop using phones in uh, hospitals starting from 1st of March. Other areas that lag behind hospital services include little capacity of hospitals and lack of medicine and a small number of physicians compared to the patients that come looking for medical attention. The Minister of Health, however, here pledged to solve such problems because the government has already made it priority. Silvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. The Nelson Mandela Foundation is expected to launch the Nelson Mandela Centenary Program, which will mark a hundred years since the birth of the world icon. Madiba, as he was affectionately known by many, was born in Mvezo in the Eastern Cape on the 18th of July in 1918. He died on the 5th of December in 2013 at the age of 95. Mbali Sibanyoni reports. 27 years ago, the world saw Nelson Mandela emerge from prison after serving 27 years behind bars under the apartheid government on charges of sabotage. Four years later, Madiba was elected as South Africa's first democratic president. And four years after that, in 1999, he stepped down with these words. Together, we must continue our efforts to turn our hopes into reality. The long walk continues. Zela nte, moi luk, zela 
In celebrating the struggle hero, the Nelson Mandela Foundation is expected to stage events in Orlando East and Soweto, where Madiba used to train as a boxer in the 1950s. The celebrations will be under the banner hashtag 27 for 27, leading up to marking 100 years of his life next year. The foundation's Silo Hadang. We're going to have theatre productions that will take a year again to, to produce um, sport uh, activities uh, that will also take a while to produce. And all these um, will take a while and we're saying, please bear with us. As we produce them, we want you to be part of them. But the most exciting part of this is that we're saying to South Africans, help us make 2018 great by telling us this year, what do you want to see happen next year? So your ideas will help build this thing. We are not alone in it, and we know that you also own Madiba. We're calling on you to give us ideas. To mark Madiba's centenary, his granddaughter Nileka Mandela will also launch her own Timbegile Mandela Foundation to assist girls in rural areas. Dilega recalls moments following Mandela's release from prison, saying it was an exciting time for the family and she thought she would finally be given the chance to spend quality time with her grandfather. I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to have my grandfather to myself. I'm like, I can go have coffee with him, have picnics. I had these high hopes that, you know, he's going to be my grandfather again. Well, I, I was in for a rude awakening <laughs> because when he came out, he became the man of the people, you know, he became a global icon. And I resented that for, 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 for a long time, you know, because I felt like, you know, I thought that he would be mine. And that resentment ended, that, ended with us not even talking at some, at some point. As Madiba's legacy continues to be celebrated, in recent times it has also been criticised with some saying too much was compromised in achieving democracy. Bali Sibanyoni in Johannesburg. American astronaut Peggy Whitson is making history as the first woman ever to command two missions aboard the International Space Station. However, back on Earth, the United Nations is concerned that comparatively few women are launching careers in the space sector or studying the so-called STEM subjects, that is, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. The world marked International Day of Women and Girls in Science over the weekend on the 11th of February. The UN Radio's Diane Penn reports on a panel discussion organized by the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs looking at ways to get more women into STEM and into space. A recent study by UN educational agency UNESCO reveals the extent of the gender gap in the sciences. Although in many countries women are at parity with men in the life sciences, they are consistently underrepresented in engineering and in computer sciences, a field that continues to grow. Simonetta De Pippo is director of the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, based in Vienna. As humankind makes significant scientific and technological advancements, there is still persistent gender inequality in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. While there is an encouraging improvement, women's contributions are, and potentials are still not fully utilized. It is frustrating that in the 21st century, in the fields that are known for breaking boundaries, we are still not making the most of what women have to offer.
The panelists spoke of the importance of dismantling stereotypes surrounding the STEM careers, such as they're hard or only for geeks. They advocated for more representation of women computer programmers, engineers, and scientists, for example, in the media. Former astronaut Sandy Magnus believes these images are important. A newspaper article about women astronauts showed her that this was a career possibility. Because at that moment, I saw there was a path. Before, I knew I wanted to do it, and I knew I was going to try and do it, but I had no idea how I was going to do it. But there, in front of me in the newspaper that day, there was a path for how I could go be an astronaut. It affected me so much, I started crying actually, and it had a huge impact on me. But women and girls also need to know that there are more jobs in the space sector besides astronaut, says Chiaki Mukai from Japan, the country's first woman in space. She had trained as a medical doctor, and becoming an astronaut wasn't even in her plans. So more diverse people, not only the pilot, but also the scientists, doctors, teachers, many people can work in space program. That made me realize, oh, 20 centuries science has so advanced. Now we are living and working in space. That was Japanese astronaut Chiaki Mukai speaking at a panel discussion organized by the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs. Diane Penn, United Nations. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Chairman and the chief executive of First Quantum, Philip Pascal, has announced that the mining firm will pump in another one billion U.S. dollars into the operations in Zambia. Pascal announced this when he led the FQM team that paid a courtesy call on the Zambian delegation at the mining conference in Cape Town, South Africa. Pascal says the company is reinventing over 350 million U.S. dollars to modernize. Kansanchi Mine in Sulwezi. The organization Undoing Tax Abuse has lauded the South African National Energy Regulator for rejecting Eskom's demands for a higher tariff increase. Auta says it has it on good authority that the power utility lacks internal auditing. Outer spokesperson Ted Blom says Ascom's leadership cannot continue to pass poor productivity and maladministration and dodgy contracts onto the public through tariff hikes. French oil major Total Mare is set to become the dominant player in East Africa's oil industry with the acquisition of Gulf African Petroleum Corporation. 
The Paris headquartered firm with well-established links through Total Kenya, Total Uganda and Total Tanzania will now enjoy the full economies of scale in both downstream and upstream sectors. Riding on the massive assets of Gapco, Total is not new to acquiring oil businesses. Global oil output has plunged in January as OPEC and non-OPEC producers curbed supply to accelerate a market rebalancing. All supplies fell by about 1.5 million barrels per day last month. The Paris-based IEA said if January level of compliance were maintained, the output restrictions combined with the strong demand growth should help ease the record stock's overhang in the next six months by around 600,000 barrels per day. Egyptian chocolate maker Swifax has doubled its assets and is struggling to keep up with the demand since the pound currency dived in November. The pound's flotation and an ensuing increase in tariffs on more than 300 products shipped from abroad have hit importers very hard. The US dollar 1332 in South Africa, 1035 in Botswana, 977 in Zambia, 80 British pound, 93 euro, gold 1231 dollars, platinum 1000 dollars an ounce, brand crude 56 dollars, 48 cents a barrel. Channel Africa. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I love A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. South Africa's under-20 national team, Amajita, 
went down 2-1 to Zambia in a friendly international match played at Ngoloma Stadium in Lusaka on Sunday afternoon. It was a repeat of the Kosafa Cup final match in December last year, which the Zambians won the same scoreline. Both teams were using the friendly international to fine-tune their preparations for the upcoming CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations, which will be held in Zambia from the 26th of February to the 12th of March. Sinong says this was a good friendly for them. They really needed such a challenge. He says he believes this match was far better than the Kosafa Cup final. And the South African Football Association, SAFA, says a new South African coach will be appointed at the end of the month. Bafana Bafana have been without a coach since the dismissal of Sheikh Mashaba last December. Mashaba has taken the matter to the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, the CCMA, but SAFA says it is continuing the search for a new coach. SAFA President Denny Jordan. Bafana Bafana is going to play one, qualification for the African Cup of Nations, two, qualification for the World Cup, three, qualification for Chan, four, the Kosafa Cup. So it's four major competitions in this year for Bafana Bafana. So that is why we need a coach. In South African Premier Soccer League, PSL side Platinum Stars have made a slow start to their CAF Confederations Cup campaign, beating Unawa Desportivo de Songo 1-0. In a preliminary stage, first leg game played at Royal Bafuking Stadium in Northwest Province at the weekend. Playing against a stubborn Mozambican side that had come to settle for a draw, Stars only managed to get a breakthrough through Robert Ngambi's 63rd minute strike. Under the circumstances, Stars head coach Kevin, jo- Kevin Johnson says he will take this win. In one moment, uh, when people park the bus, it's always easy to go around the bus. But uh, I didn't think we, 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 we got there. Yes, we got the balls across, we got the balls behind them, but again, it didn't fall fast. We had many opportunities, I think. But uh, they came here to defend, and they, they defended well in one moment. But uh, we're happy just to go back. You know, to, to win the game, especially at home. Yes, you always say, you know, when you when you play the Confederations Cup, you have to win at least by two goals to zero to make sure uh, when you get to the other side, uh, you're able to defend properly. And the Mozambicans will fancy their chances going into the second leg in Maputo next weekend. Dosongo head coach Chikwinyo Konde feels that this is a result that they can manage to overturn at home. And on to athletic news, it's all shaping up and closer for Uganda to host the World Cross Country Running Championship at Kampala in under seven weeks. Our correspondent, Geshe Mnyati, reports. The World Cross Country Championships has a significant impact for Uganda. The championships, which began in 1973, that is 44 years ago, will be staged only for the fourth time on the African continent. Morocco was the first country to host the championships in 1995. South Africa on two occasions in 1996, 1998, and Kenya in 2007. All the three previous host countries are credited with excellent cross-country runners in the old days. Khalid Scar of Morocco won the championships in a row in 1990, 1991, and an Olympic 10,000 meters gold medal in the same year. South Africa had immense talent in Zolabad. Unfortunately, Zolapati's career was hindered by politics of the day, which kept the Rainbow Nation out of international sporting activities. 
Kenya's historic and outstanding profile was ushered in by Johnny Ngugi. Ngugi became a dominant figure and won a record four consecutive world titles between 1986 and 1989 and five titles overall. Meanwhile, Australia have announced their 24-member squad to compete at the forthcoming event in Uganda. Geshom Nyati, Channel of Sports, London. And finally, with golf news, Eric van Rooyen hid his approach to inside a foot in the first hole of a three-way playoff on Sunday to set himself up for birdie and victory in the 111 US dollars Eye of Africa PGA Championship. He finished regulation play with a birdie on 18-2 to finish on 16 under par for the tournament together with Dylan Fritelli and Makheta Mazibugo, who narrowly missed a par part on 18 in regulation, which would have given him the victory. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Burundians reject UN report on the country's human rights situation and the UN urges sustained momentum towards democratic governance in Somalia. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magadza and Tutum Gubeni, technical producer Wiseman and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter. Band to Southern Africa is Lady Smith Black Mambazo with a song titled Wenyukelwa from an album of the same title which won a Grammy Award on this day in 1986. Baba, 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 baba.